Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back to an episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. I am Dr. Danielle Tolman, a vestibular physical therapist, and as always joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, who is also a vestibular physical therapist and a neuroclinical specialist. And today we are joined again by a very special guest. We had Sarah on in a couple of uh, past seasons, and we're very excited to have her back on today to give us some insight into the patient perspective of the vestibular journey. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to hopefully share some uh, some wisdom. I'm really pumped. So the first time that Sarah and I met was long, long ago. It's years now, which I can't believe how fast time is flying. Um, but her and I were working together to sort out some vestibular dysfunction symptoms. And then since then, we've kind of kept tabs um, with what each other were doing and kind of following your path along the way to see how you progress through um, your journey. So we're really, really excited to have you. Thanks again for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, awesome. Well, why don't we start about um, talking about how to find the right clinician? You have worked with a great multidisciplinary team in the past and have some great recommendations in terms of who to have in your corner. So where should someone start by finding the right clinician to work with them? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a multifactorial question because whether or not a um, clinician has the knowledge is a different question than are they a good fit for you, which is a different fit than are they a good fit for your problem. Um, and so to start, I'll just talk about maybe some ways to to weed out where you might be wasting time and beyond just uh, you know, assuming they have the scope of knowledge. And the first would be to, to ask questions um, about their methodology. So why are they doing something? Can they explain it back to you? I think it's pretty common, commonly understood in you know, academia and higher education that like the best way to show that you've learned something is to actually teach it to someone else. And so if they have an inability to explain something in simplistic terms, it might be that they don't understand it. Moreover, if they don't want to take the time to walk you through and empower you as the patient, you know, that's it doesn't it's not really a good uh, good vote for them uh, in in that respect as well. Um, so I would say start there. Um, I would you know familiarize yourself with the appropriate accreditation. So um, I think that there's a way to become a quote concussion specialist with like a weekend course, uh, just as an example, and a vestibular person like that. And then there's the way to, you know, really do a fellowship and expand upon your knowledge. Um, and so those are some things to consider. And while credentials don't ne aren't necessarily the start and end to understanding someone's knowledge and potential to help you, it's a decent place to start in terms of understanding their education and also the way they're going to approach your problem understanding where they're coming from, their background, um, but also taking the time to maybe call the office and ask if you can speak to the physician, if they have the time to talk to you and kind of uh, uh, make you feel good about coming in and working with them, then they're going to have the time to sit down and explain things and actually work with you. But if somebody answers the phone, they're like, yeah, we see some concussion patients. That's probably not a place to go if you're suffering from concussion symptoms. So that's definitely a good piece of advice. The last thing I'll add is um, one thing that's really impressed me about the physician that I'm currently working under. Um, I'm a clinical assistant for Dr. Nate Kaiser uh, in Chelsea, Michigan right now. 
And he goes through his uh, exam, basically wanting to prove his hypothesis to himself. So um, there are no assumptions when you walk in the door, no matter what your presenting symptoms are. And, you know, if you're well um, educated in physiology and the way the vestibular system works, you know, specifically this podcast, like you should be able to examine and test things along the way to ensure that you're A, on the right track, affecting the right variables, um, and also making sure not to overdo it on your patient. And so I think being humble enough to sort of check your own hypothesis and continue to ask questions as you go, I think that's an important thing that sets the best clinicians apart. That's huge. I think not going in with the thought of like, all right, this is a diagnosis. This is what I'm going to find. Uh, vestibular patients can actually vary from visit to visit. And being able to look at that and be able to change and pivot in that day is huge. And to not overdo it. That was a great piece of advice. I think we have a lot of people that we see through Balancing Act and the telehealth services. They're kind of like on their last um straw with things and they've tried everything under the sun and they've tried vestibular therapy in the past and it just, you know, it didn't work for them. It made them feel worse. They had bad experiences. It's because somebody pushed them too hard, too fast, too soon. And I think that that's definitely something very scary for people going through symptoms of vestibular dysfunction to experience that, especially with a clinician who's supposed to know what they're doing and how to make them feel better. And that's, it's, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I think it's important for people suffering from vestibular based problems uh, to know, and, and you guys can correct me if you're wrong, because I'm not a clinician, but the increase in symptoms, they're uncomfortable, and that's not fun, but they aren't causing harm. You're not injuring your brain, your inner ear, you're not in injuring any of that circuitry by pushing too far. And I think people get scared by it. And it's not comfortable. I'm not saying, you know, go do this, it's great. But understanding that you're not causing harm, you're not actually making things worse, I think is a useful thing to bring up with patients, um, especially because I think the whole goal of physical therapy is to get you uncomfortable and build up that tolerance strategically and um, specifically. But Within I think that is good. Yeah, you you need to start. We have this, this conversation with patients all the time because one, we warn them that therapy is probably going to stimulate some symptoms. It is normal to stimulate symptoms as long as you stimulate it within a very um, therapeutic threshold. You know, um, Abby and I will describe this as the rule of five to our patients. It's okay if you hang out that three, four, five out of 10 area when we are doing these exercises, but we should never push past that. And your symptoms should return to baseline after taking a rest for about a minute or two, never more. Um, but you can push too hard, too fast. And it's very counterintuitive. However, you need to push to order to make in order to make something um, successful and work and be efficient. It's like going to the gym and lifting one pound weights. Anybody can pick up a one pound weight and do bicep curls. And if it doesn't feel like you're burning anything or you have muscle soreness, you're not building anything. It's not until you pick up those heavier weights, you stimulate a little bit of burn, a little bit of fatigue in those muscles, and you can continue to build from there. So that's a really great point, Sarah. Yeah, and I'll just add that um, I just wrote an article for Brain Injury Professional Magazine, um, and I won't spill all the details, but an idea within that article is about using objective metrics in the therapy room. And so the idea that something as simple as, you know, using uh, a pulse ox and tracking heart rate and looking at recovery, because you'll often find with vestibular visual exercise, that's actually, you're going to see a change because it's stress. It, it's a, you know, objective marker of strain on the body. Um, 
And so understanding those effects, watching recovery is can be sometimes better than um, relying exclusively on subjective reporting. Because um, I know at least I had a terrible, terrible time of being able to distinguish severity. And also I had this, I just want to get better. I'm going to fight through mentality, um, which was sometimes to my detriment. But I think there are a lot of opportunities to use um, objective metrics, be that like eye capture technology, um, heart rate, uh, and even just your ability to engage with someone. So like when you're the clinician, you have this opportunity, like you can probably see when you're starting to lose someone, uh, their, their eyes don't focus as well. They look tired. Like, you know, that look. Um, and so being able to use that as well, uh, to your advantage. You bring up a really good point when it comes to finding the right care team. And that is finding someone you're comfortable being a teammate with too, because what you're describing right now, yes, there are objective measures that we can use, but also subjective measures. And it's really important that patients communicate effectively with their provider so their provider can adjust whatever recommendations they're providing. So if it's too much too fast, Yes, there are things we can notice about a patient, but also it's really important that the patient themselves says, you know, I had symptoms for three hours after my session with you. Is there something we can change about this? And that means you're having a dosage problem and your provider should adjust that. Can you talk a little bit about then? Um, well, first of all, you're into sports. You know what being a team teammate is. And I really like describing the patient clinician relationship as a team. Can you describe how you develop that teamwork or um, team framework with your provider? Yeah. So I actually sort of look at it like they're the coach. Um, so obviously wanting team success, but, but there isn't necessarily, you know, equality in knowledge or understanding. So I think about it as coaching and, and relying. So you have to have trust, in the fact that a your coach wants you to win whatever that means for you b that they have the knowledge to teach you and you know see that they have some teaching skills they're actually good enough to explain it um and so that's sort of my perspective and i would say your teammates can be your support system but i i look to the therapist as a the coach i like the term that you used and along the lines of they want you to win and i think that there's an aspect of that that's really important about somebody's journey to feeling better is I, I'm hoping that people out there find a clinician who will ask you, what is your goal for therapy? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to get back to? And then setting that metric in order to figure out, um, you know, what that measure is, uh, is for success. Because, you know, not only do we have metrics that we use to objectively measure somebody's progress, but we need the patient to also feel like they're winning, that they're gaining back quality of life, that they're getting back to the point that they want to get back to. Um, but, you know, in some circumstances, too, expectations have to be managed. Um, can you talk a little bit about what managing expectations look like for somebody going through, um, you know, a vestibular dysfunction journey? Yeah, well, first, uh, to your point that you should ask people what winning looks like to them, I think that's a great opportunity to learn what's valuable to the patient and also have an opportunity to manage expectations. Like if you have a congenital or um, uh, what's it called when it like gets worse over time? Degenerative condition. Uh, I worked a full day today. Um, degenerative condition. 
Um, like you might want to have a different conversation if the person is like really trying to get back to riding a roller coaster with their grandkids. Like that's a different conversation and an opportunity to sort of mediate what their expectations are. But with regards to manning your expectations as the patient, I think the first would be that um, it's going to take effort and it's not an overnight fix. I think you can liken it to, um, you know, improving your fitness or weight loss. Like it requires consistent effort. And I think sometimes helping explain the physiology behind why that's the case is useful. If you think about retraining pathways within the brain and improving sensory integration and your sensory processing, that stuff is uh, not a quick or easy thing that can be accomplished. Um, It's more complex than just building muscle. And you think about how long it takes to um, get fit in the gym. So those things I think are important to keep in mind and explain. Um, you know, in addition to that, I think that it's important to build small victories along the way and really build in goals. So, um, just as an example, um, from my own life, if my goal was to, I was crazy. I was like trying to run a half marathon. I thought that would be really cool and a kind of ultimate like F you to the situation. But in order to run a half a half marathon, um, you have to run like a mile. Uh, and in order to run a mile, you have to tolerate, you know, elevated cardiovascular output. And like you just got to backtrack that a bit. And so um, the same thing can be, you know, said for um, getting back into a school environment. You have to be able to read at home by yourself before you can, you know, be in a classroom. And so understanding that progression and working with your clinician to set like mile markers along the race, you know, to use that analogy, I think can be really useful and also understanding where you're at and in, in your healing journey. I'm laughing because I remember being in the mix of all of that when you were trying so hard to get into that half marathon. But what's so great about it is you eventually did it. Yeah, I did. In October of 2019, I ran the Detroit half marathon and raised like just over $6,000 for the Love Your Brain Foundation. See, that's amazing. But baby steps to get there and knowing that it's not necessarily a purely linear progression. I I have to really educate my patients on the fact that it's normal to have peaks and valleys going across your progress. And you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days, just like you would if you were symptom free. And then I love the um, point that you made and you hit on about um, celebrating the small wins. And I'll have some patients come in and say, oh, nothing's different. You know, everything's everything's the same and nothing's getting better. But then I point out the different types of exercises that we've been doing, and they finally were able to start taking their dog for a walk, or they could bend over to put something in the dishwasher and stand back up without getting dizzy. So there's sometimes it's just the small wins that you got to focus on to watch that progress improve um, and celebrate them. And, you know, just because you can now bend over without getting dizzy doesn't mean that's uh, any less uh, more to celebrate than, you know, running a half marathon. Yeah. And, gotta, and that, there's been a lot of victories. I mean, the, the half marathon is an easy one to use because I really had to work for it. But um, one of my clinicians basically said, so like when everything first happened, I had a lot of problems. Like couldn't see double, had, um, you know, like pre-syncope, like, did, uh, you know, it was, I threw up a lot. The world would spin like uh, going from the world spinning when you did things to having the world not spin is a drastic change that you will not miss. 
But he said one time he kind of sat like sat me down a ways out at the end of our appointment. And he was like, it's like, so the changes aren't going to be huge anymore. Like they're going to be subtle, but pretty soon you're going to be out. It's going to be one in the morning. You're with your friends. I was in college and you're like, you're just going to notice that you're out at 1am with your friends and you're going to wake up the next day and you're going to be tired, but you're going to be able to go to the library. And like knowing that that was going to happen. Or for instance, um, I had brain surgery in um, May of this past year, and it's been um, challenging to get back my driving stamina. Uh, so I feel very safe, but it's like for 40 minutes. And um, it's the same thing. It's like, that seemed like such a hurdle and it wasn't going to like noticeably get easier, but I commute a half hour to work every day, go get groceries, go do, drive friends to the airport. Um, like, and it just happens and you have to take a step back and be like, wow, look at this. Or I come home today to do this podcast and I'm exhausted. I've been working since nine o'clock. I've been up since six 30 and I'm tired and I'm like wolfing down my dinner. And I'm realizing that I have worked a whole day being on my feet, using my brain, um, dealing with patients, whatever I come home and I'm able to, you know, have this conversation and, and I have work to do tonight. So like just being able to appreciate the way things have changed, I think is really important. Like gratitude is good for everyone. There's a lot of science behind that and positive psychology, but it's a very simple thing, even at the end of your session to be like, Hey, like what is working today? Like take note of that. And even on the bad days, they're probably better than your bad days from a month ago. Really good point. Now, audience members hearing this might think, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say, Sarah, you have done the work. It's been years of progress in the making. Now, what do you say to those patients who are in the thick of it at this moment? How do they keep, quote unquote, their eyes on the prize or their eyes on the the stepping stones to get to the prize? So a, a few things for that is like, I, you know, had brain and neck injuries in 2014, had to deal with this problem that sort of manifested um, this past year. And, you know, I, I'm still, I still do things every day to set myself up for success in terms of, you know, optimal functioning. Uh, and I ask a lot of myself. Um, so like, I'm going to be in a, you know, intense academic program, I work like, so I, um, but it's by no means easy. But I say, what would I tell like myself, my high school junior self, who was known as the weird pukey kid in class? Um, like just to grit your teeth and hang in there and to believe that there's something better. So I think one of the things that's really useful is understanding the mechanism of why you're feeling the way you are. And so and knowing that you know, the coolest part about the brain is that it has like plasticity, it can change and it can change for the better. And so scientifically, it's, you know, not correct to say that things won't get better. They might not get perfect. Like you might not get back to, you know, uh, a life where you never have to think about it, but you can get very close. And I'd also challenge people to think about what else they can do, um, not only to support themselves, but like, what does a meaningful life mean? I think from a young age, I forced my, I was forced to, you know, really contemplate where I could get fulfillment from and what success really meant. And I think in having flexibility in those terms uh, really allows you to move through the challenging times. And none of that's easy. Like I said that, like, oh, just do it, check it off the list. But um, it takes a lot of consistent effort. Lots of, I was going to kind of comment on that and say <laughs> that. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, there are, I found in the years that we've been working with vestibular patients, there are different types of people, right? Just like we all have different learning styles. We all have different ways of approaching therapy. And there are some people like you where we have to reel you in because you are those consistent uh, go-getters that can, that does everything they can. Like I remember you were just so concentrating on working hard and putting everything you can to get back to normal. And sometimes you were pretty hard on yourself. Um, if you felt like you weren't at the standard that you wanted to hold yourself to. So there's definitely that side of the spectrum. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where there's, there are people that just feel like, Oh, this is it. This is the rest of my life. I should just give up and nothing I'm doing is going to make it feel better. And that this is just, you know, what's, what it's going to be. And I had to say, um, there's a lot to be said for consistent hard work and also giving yourself grace, um, yes. reminding yourself that you're human and that, you know, things are going to progress the way they're going to progress. And as long as you stay um, uh, vigilant and consistent and you give yourself a break and allow yourself to be human, like that is all part of the journey. You're going to have good days, bad days, up, down, days that are more symptomatic and days where you feel like you you're back to close to your old self. You know, you just got to take it day by day and just give yourself the grace um, to kind of uh, attempt that. Yeah. So they definitely like, or my consistent effort definitely waxes and wanes. Um, but I think one useful strategy that I think has gotten me through is taking in a gameful approach to rehab. Um, and so, you know, as a person, you can leverage your own psychology and what people know about human behavior um, to make it more than likely that you do some things at home for home therapy, just as an example, or make it more than likely that you go to bed with a more positive mindset. So um, things like habit tracking and rewarding yourself for consistency. For instance, I make a goal of doing some form of rehab. And um, this is really relevant because I dislocated my shoulder uh, like uh, in February. Um, is like I set the goal at six days per week, consistent rehab. And that gives me a day to be like, I didn't get to it, you know? And so understanding your own fallibility, but also working in a system that supports you. Um, a guy, author named James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits, which I've definitely integrated a lot into my life. But he says people fall to the level of their systems, and it's very true. So if you think about a way that that you can sort of utilize opportunities to better work the rehab process into your own life, the way that you exist, it's going to be a lot better than just trying to cram something in or do things in a way that that might be antithetical to the way that you live your life. And, and that's going to be extremely individual, but I would just encourage people to utilize that. I was going to say, I'm actually currently reading that book. And when you started speaking, I was like, she's had to have read that book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big fan of James Clare. Yep. And part of it is, like you said, I'm just going to reiterate a little bit, changing the system, right? So doing things like habit tracking and not thinking about necessarily the end goal all the time, but what are the steps that it takes to get to that end goal? That's the system. That's the process that gets you there. So that's really good. Danny, did you have something to add to that? I did, but I lost my train of thought, to be completely <laughs> honest. That's okay. Oh, my th I, I was going to say that we I talk to patients a lot about habit forming just in the way of looking at what they do on a daily basis and finding a way to tie an exercise to that every single day habit. So 
if you brush your teeth every morning, maybe do an exercise while you're brushing your teeth or after you eat lunch, or if you have some certain things that you do on certain days. Um, I had a really great uh, recommendation from a patient from everyone wearing Apple watches. Now you can set reminders to breathe or to stand. And she had it set for a certain frequency that every time it reminded her to stand or breathe, she would do a vestibular exercise. So there's different little things that we learn from patients um, that are new from uh, day to day that are really helpful, but it's going to be very individualized and something that um, is going to have to just be worked into their daily routine. Yeah. I'd also reinforce that a little bit is better than nothing at all. Um, much like exercise, I think you you might not be able to gain as much traction, but if you're you only have five minutes that day to do one thing, then do that that one thing and, and that can make an impact. I think when people are given a list of things, especially if they have an order or like it's an all or nothing mentality. And, and I think there's a lot more room for nuance there. All right. We are at this portion where we need gold nuggets. All right. We need tips, tips, tips for all of our listeners. Um, just because I know that a lot of what you can offer in terms of uh, tips and tricks, um, it can be extremely helpful for people who are listening. So why don't we start with, you can give us fast things. You can elaborate as much as you want, but why don't you give us some tips on how to maintain your social life and relationships while living with symptoms and vestibular dysfunction? We'll start there. Yeah. Well, I think one thing to really think about in regards to managing, you know, the vestibular stuff while you're going through it is that, um, to sort of switch in the reframe on like, I'm going back to my old life and you're moving forward to a new life. Like I, talk about it's really well exemplified with my case because this all started when I was um, a teenager and now I'm 25. And so I've been moving forward through different stages of life quite obviously. Like I graduated from college, I graduated from high school. And so like in the same way that my friends aren't in the same place that they were in 2014, I'm not either. And might it be different than if none of this had ever happened? Sure. But I think it's an important reframe when sort of thinking about your life. Cause I think there, you know, you can ask my dad and he's really busy trying to get back to his college days. Like, but that's not going to happen. Right. Like, um, and stuff like that, or, or their pre children, uh, post marriage days, right. Like the glory days, whatever they mean. So I think having that mentality, uh, surrounding, you know, symptom onset and moving forward, I think is important to sort of optimize the way you feel about where you are. That being said, social situation. So, um, if my friends listen to this, they'll get a kick out of this because um, I don't think anyone would take social advice from me. Um, but uh, I guess there are a few ways to think about it. Um, I'm going to take romantic relationships and put it off to the side. I can talk about that, but I want to like give that its own due. Um, the, so in terms of engaging with friends, the first off would be um, hopefully there are people in your life where you can be vulnerable and actually share even a portion of what you experience. So I found that, you know, when things first happen and even in college, when I got this fresh start, like a lot of people were willing to meet me in the way that I needed to live. And, you know, those are the people I still talk to. There's something to be said for that. So I would say first, like, don't lose hope that your friends won't meet you where you're at. The second is you have the opportunity to take control of the situation. So, um, like the way I made a lot of my friends uh, in college was on 
I, we have this thing welcome week, which is when you live in the dorms, but classes haven't started yet. And you're supposed to like meet people and you go to parties and it's like syllabus week anyway. So uh, there's not a lot of learning being had And my core group of friends to go through university with were the people that didn't really want to go out on the third night of college. Like I was tired and symptomatic, but I'm not sure I told them in that moment, but believe it or not, there were other kids that were just too tired. And maybe it's because I was in the honors college. So like that trends nerdier. Um, but like, so, and I set the situation. So I was like, Hey, like, let's have a fun, like chat and game night to get to know each other in my dorm room. And let's like, let's hang out there. So I set the scene. So I knew that I could be comfortable because it was my room. I knew I'd have what I would need. I knew it was close to the bathroom because I lucked out and, uh, and I knew that I could create the environment I wanted to. So like, if you have a vestibular problem and, you know, maybe going out to dinner is super challenging invite a few friends over to take out. You can control the environment and then share in social experiences. So that's, um, I'll stop there. I just talked a lot. Any comments? No, I I love that. Taking control of the situation because I feel like, I I don't know why that never crossed my my mind before to uh, instruct patients to to take that upon themselves to take control of the situation because I think a lot of patients suffering from vestibular dysfunction feel out of control. They're losing control of their life. And I like that idea of gaining back control in some way. Did you find it hard to get people to understand that you had symptoms and things were difficult for you? Um, what did that look like? Um, so I think that it got easier with the maturity increase as I got older. So um, I think if you were to talk to your average 16 year old, they might struggle to empathize. Um, but I would say that that gets out of people's systems after high school. So I would say I have a slightly like biased sample uh, in terms of my experience. Um, but I think that most people were understanding if I explained it to them. And I think that's the catch. So for instance, canceling due to symptoms is a very common concern within this population. So canceling with no explanation or canceling because of some made up explanation, or I just don't feel like it is very different than saying, Hey, I'd really love to see you right now. Trust me, but I really don't feel well. And I need to take this time for myself, but can we catch up next week? Or can I call you later or something like that? And that's a very different conversation. So in some ways, unfairly, yes, it is on that person to sort of divulge and share. But I think like Brene Brown has made a living off of saying vulnerability is met with vulnerability, being willing to communicate and knowing that you have enough self-worth to be if they aren't willing to modify based off your needs, and they might not be worth it for you, especially if your ask isn't too much. And I say it goes back to putting the social existence on your term. So for instance, um, the majority of dating for my generation occurs via apps. And so like, I will suggest and or only agree to places where I know I'll be comfortable. Um, And I think that's a useful thing to play to your strategy. And if you're planning a date night with your husband, you know, why don't you order takeout in and have a movie um, or go for a walk in a park and maybe like not go to the Bruce Springsteen concert where that might be a bit too much. Um, Just as an example. Yeah, I feel like I rambled there. No, I mean, I can, I can add from the longer term perspective and marriage and all of this, because I've been having some health issues of my own, um, the last year since having my daughter and it kind of hit us from left out of left field, um, of why I was feeling so 
terrible. And it's just been this thing that's nonstop and constant. And something I also hear from patients who have had chronic symptoms and living with their spouse is that it's the recognition that it's equally as hard on them as well, that they don't enjoy uh, not knowing how to help their loved one and that feeling of helplessness that they have no idea um, how to make them feel better in a moment of when they're feeling terrible. And to see that day in and day out, it definitely wears down on somebody in that long-term relationship where sometimes you just have to both sit back and admit this sucks. Like this is just really shitty and you feel bad and I feel bad and we just feel bad together and let's figure out how to move forward. It's definitely not all uh, rainbows and, and roses, but uh, I think that you're point in communication is huge. You have to be able to communicate and be able to empathize um, with the other party, even if you're the one suffering from the symptoms. Yeah. And I I can give you a a good story in that um, uh, I lived with um, five other people in college and we were throwing a sort of end of term, like post exams, Christmas, ugly Christmas sweater party. And so I've known these people now for three years. It was our junior year, pre-COVID, by the way, because I'm going to say we were at a party. Uh, it's 2019. Uh, and December 2019, right before things got crazy. Um, and I came down the stairs and one of my roommates basically showed me. They were like, oh, we have the Sarah fr- friendly zone, which was like without the strobe light. And that I didn't even ask to ask for it. But after a few years of knowing me, they wanted to create a party environment where I could be um, involved in like I would have been affected by the light, but I wouldn't have not gone anyway, but they were like the parties in our house. Like we want you involved. And and it was a really fun time. But I just think that if you give people the chance and the knowledge, I think you might be pleasantly surprised. Um, so I, th- I just like to share that story uh, because it, it shows what good can happen. Yeah. And, and you may or may not have explicitly expressed that, but I do think that, part of the success in relationships, whether it's romantic or friendship, is expressing your needs. And we talked a little bit about that when we were speaking about vulnerability. But one of the things I want to dive a little bit more into is you're a super positive person. Your mindset is admirable, right? Like I wish I had your brain all the time when it comes to your mindset. And this patient population, whether they're super positive people or not, inevitably these symptoms can affect their psyche. So can you talk a little bit about how you maintain such a positive mindset throughout all this? Because anxiety and symptoms often go hand in hand. Yeah. So first off, thank you. But also I'm not sure if the people closest to me would describe me as this continuously positive person. Um, So I don't want to necessarily go with the complete facade. Um, when people ask, are you glass uh, half full or half empty? I go, I'm glass spilled over. Um, you know, like, but I think it's, you know, prepare for the best, expect the worst, and you can never be disappointed. Um, so I would say that I put consistent effort into maintaining a positive outlook and frame shift um, around the situation. And even like with my recent shoulder dislocation, which is a very straightforward orthopedic issue that is really only hindering my ability to increase my deadlift, you know, post-op and, and get back to the climbing gym. Um, so small things in comparison to where I've been, um, you know, thinking about how much I'm learning about body mechanics and 
um, you know, getting insight into like the ER trauma experience um, from a, like a place that I can remember it and like really reca like recount it and be educated because I'm aspiring to be a clinician, like trying to find the positive. So like that came about three weeks after the woe is me sitting on the couch watching Shrek with um, pain medication. Uh, so like, I think, I think you're catching me at a point where I can be this positive person. Um, I think part of my ability to be, to have a positive outlook and optimistic outlook about my prognosis um, was because I allowed myself to feel the feelings when they come. And so one of the things that I think has really saved me was like, it sucks and you have to bask in the suck. And I had a lot of significant health challenges, especially in this last year that resulted in needing brain surgery. Um, and like, you can't pretend that it doesn't suck. And so like, this is going to sound stupid, but I swear it's effective. And that like, you, you just got to set a timer and be like, for these next 10 minutes, I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be mad. I might cry. I might punch something. You don't know. And like, but when the timer goes off, you walk away and you're like, this is not productive. Um, but I do think that like pain demands to be felt. And so I think it's important to have those things. I also am really heavily reliant and eternally grateful for my very strong support system, be that my, you know, immediate family, uh, friends, even clinicians, like people that I have that I can trust. Um, I think it's important and being able to, um, you know, have those feelings validated, have a place for them. I'm a really big journaler. Um, I think one of the frustrating things with vestibular disorders specifically is that there's often a period of invalidation before you really get to the root of your symptoms. Um, so I, because of the nature of my injury and I like didn't necessarily have that because it was pretty obvious what was going on. And, and so I didn't have that like wandering, wondering, you know, why is the world spending moment? But for a lot of people, I know that's the case and it's hard to diagnose and vestibular specialists are hard to find. And so I think being able to trust your gut and having, especially as a clinician, offering that opportunity to validate your patient whenever possible, I think is really important. Um, and, you know, especially to, you know, women and, um, you know, people of color and people that might not be treated as nicely within the healthcare system that we know statistically often get more dismissed. I think, I think it's that much more important to, to really play a role in that, um, and I think it comes down to the, and I guess the last main thing that has really helped me is that I learned the science behind what was happening. So there was an understanding. So it's like, if you think about a baby, why babies cry all the time, it's because like, they have no idea what's going on. Like all of a sudden you pick them up and you know, they're upset about it or, or whatever. Uh, Danny can speak to this because she's a, a relatively new mom, but like babies have no idea what's happening. So things are scary. Um, like peekaboo, like that's scary sometimes for babies, but with an adult that knows what's going on, that is, you know, just amusing or whatever. Um, and so, you know, if something's happening in your body and in your brain that you don't understand, I mean, that's terrifying. And, but so I've found that with every layer, I mean, I went and got a degree in neuroscience, like but with every layer of understanding that I've uncovered, I think that it's so much more easy for me to accept, um, like understanding breeds acceptance. Um, and so I think that's important. Um, and the last thing I'll say is community. So I have like the great privilege of working with the Love Your Brain Foundation to um, create uh, opportunities for community um, 
within uh, the adult brain injury community. So that could look like week-long retreats, um, online yoga and sort of support group style conversation. Um, and I think that finding other people, like the whole reason you have me on the show is to provide a voice that people can be like, yeah, I agree. Or, oh, that's me. I feel so seen. And that's so important. You are absolutely correct in the sense of validation, patient education. I mean, that right there is massive and community. You know, Abby and I um, worked with the Vestibular Disorders Association for, you know, many years and truly believe in raising awareness and the community that's being built there, as well as along, you know, Love Your Brain and um, the Dizzy Cook and all these, all the, all these, all these other platforms that people have utilized to get people to be made more aware of what's going on. But validating somebody's symptoms and what's going on and then educating, educating them about that is sometimes the first step into making somebody feel better. I can't tell you how many times um, I've had evaluations where it is not appropriate in their point of their timeline for them to start vestibular therapy and um, rehab exercises, but just the education they took away from being listened to, validated and educated about what was going on and what their next steps are. It almost lifts this big weight of anxiety and what ifs off their shoulder, helping them feel a little bit better. So that is massive. Now, aside from, you know, the majority of our life is social connections and, and everything along those lines, but we also have work and we have school because we have to be able to pay the bills and rack up more student debt. But aside from that, how do you manage that um, work school type of, um, uh, normalcy with symptoms. What did that look like for you going through undergrad with symptoms? Oh, yeah. Challenging high school too. Um, really, really challenging. There's like no way to sugarcoat that. Um, but I think you have to work with your clinician and also grow with experience in little ways that can help make a big, big change. Um, so like thinking back to, to the, the way olden days in terms of like where I was in the classroom mattered. Um, and that's something that your clinician might be able to point you in the direction of if you don't already sort of know based on experience. Um, and that like, as an example, um, which is pre like pretty common, if you have like positional vertigo where like turning to your left is going to be a huge problem, then you probably shouldn't sit on the right side of the classroom. Like that's just going to add insult to injury. Um, things like, having printed notes for you, um, or if you have an opportunity to use speech to text software, there's any number of things that can help you cope within the environment. I think it's entirely individualistic. And I think it's good to know that it'll take some trial and error, but also know that it is possible. I think one of the things that I really had to combat with, particularly freshman year when I was, you know, in the honors program at the University of Michigan, um, is that I sort of had this doubt in my believing I should be there. Um, like, and I waited time after high school to like heal better. Um, but sort of having this foundational understanding that like you deserve to be there and it's up to both you, your teacher or your employer and, you know, your clinicians to make it work, I think is important. And by that same token, it's also important for you to sort of be in touch with yourself about when it's not productive. So like I took a semester off of college um, sort of in the middle because I was deteriorating fast in um, realms outside of the vestibular system. But like 
I needed to pull out because it wasn't productive for my healing. It wasn't productive for my health and knowing that that was okay. And that I'm still going to go on to be a successful person. Um, hopefully fingers crossed. Uh, but like that, it, it's not going to screw you up for life just because you take a break. And I think with employment, it can be scarier because of the, um, you know, opportunity cost of working and income and savings. Like there's a lot more nuance and complexity to it, but maybe it means a different type of job for a little bit. Like think creatively. Um, I think patients know themselves best. You'll know what works and what doesn't. And I think finding ways to create an environment that best suits you is important. And also know that like, if I had never gone to school, I wouldn't have been able to do all these other things. And so like pushing your discomfort in a safe manner is important. Um, and like, I could have waited for 10 years before going to college and I'm not sure I would have gotten any better to start. And, but by going to college, getting in those environments, learning to navigate them, you know, I'm now back to go back to school and, you know, do, do things all over again in a different way. And, and so I think like, I was nervous to start working in the real world, real world in quotes. Um, but, uh, like you don't know unless you try um, and watching yourself rise to the occasion is really gratifying. All really great tips. And uh, Dr. Sue Whitney mimicked some of the things you said, you said it in different words, but sometimes when we avoid the things that make our life more normal, it actually makes it worse in the long run. And I think the example we were talking about when we were speaking to her was uh, light sensitivity or something along those lines where people want to avoid it or even movement. You want to avoid movement because it triggers you, but sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself is to dive in and use graded exposure and the stepping stones to get back on that path of normalcy and what feels good for your life and your purpose and your path. Uh, always an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And I'm so glad you came on the show again. Do you have any, you know, little send off messages or mic drop moments for <laughs> our audience before we let you go? I don't know about mic drop, but I would like the record to flag that I've never before spoken about my personal life. Um, and that was uh, thrilling, I suppose. Um, it'll be the you first time my parents are- to, to the best. Yeah. Oh, shit. If, I, if my parents listen to this, it'll be the first time they're hearing that you can go on dates. Uh, <laughs> Love that. By yeah. the way, to our audience that just listens and doesn't watch us on YouTube, Sarah had Danny and I both cracking up several times during this episode, but you didn't hear our laughter because we're on mute. And I think the the uh, the comment about my dating life goes anywhere from three dates to six months. I was cracking up over here. Well, I, I think very that, relatable. Yeah, honesty and disclosure is important, and I'm still young. And to to be fair, like I have been dealing with a variety of health challenges that would limit the extra energy required to go through interacting with the opposite sex i mean can we say otherwise <laughs> um yeah well and i guess where you can find me if you really enjoyed listening to this um you know if you're in that small minute population that um believes i have something to say uh you can follow me on instagram i post things from time to time about what i'm up to um at sren20 um and if you have any interest in the programming for um, adults affected by brain injury that are really incredible and rooted in sort of holistic well-being. You can check out loveyourbrain.com. Um, I think that uh, what they do saves lives. 
Um, also check out uh, Sarah's podcast that she put on for a limited number of episodes uh, while you were an undergrad, I believe, right? Yep, um, yeah, it was my senior capstone project during COVID. I loved it. It's called Had a Student. It's on wherever you find your podcasts. Um, even right off the bat, uh, there's a lot of golden nuggets in those episodes. Um, you had Dr. Kaiser, Dr. Nate Kaiser, who's actually also a guest of our show in the previous season. Um, but talking about motivation and time management, I thought that was a really valuable um, episode to listen to. Uh, and there's other things uh, you talk about, such as gratitude and learning and money and mindfulness. Um, so definitely check out that Indeed. is no, student. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say, yeah, the DMs are open, but for dating advice only. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. So remember, if you want to find her on Instagram, that's at sren20. Shoot her a message, follow her. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and, and joining us today. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. You were a great audience. <laughs> we'll talk to you guys soon. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.